This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Thomas Kidd is professor of history at Baylor University and is associate director of Baylor's Institute for Studies of Religion. Dr. Kidd has authored many books, including God of Liberty, A Religious History of the American Revolution, The Great Awakening, The Roots of Evangelical Christianity in Colonial America, and he most recently co-wrote Baptists in America, A History with co-author Barry Hankins. Today we're talking about one of his most recent publications, George Whitfield, America's Spiritual Founding Father. Professor Kidd, welcome to Thinking in Public. I'll say right up front, I think it's the best book yet written on George Whitfield, and it's a book that's been sorely needed for some time. Professor Thomas Kidd, when did you decide to write this book, and, and exactly why? I had been thinking about doing a George Whitfield biography for some time because I did a, a book in 2007 on the Great Awakening in general. Uh, and so my people ask me, when did you start researching the Whitfield biography? Well, it was it was back then because Whitfield is the key figure in the Great Awakening uh, in both Britain and America. And so a lot of the content of that book was giving the, the context of, of Whitfield's work. Um, but I also knew that his 300th birthday was coming in 2014, uh, and I was mindful uh, that there was an opening for a new biography of Whitfield. There have, of course, been a number of earlier biographies of him, uh, but I felt like there was really not a biography of Whitfield as an evangelical leader from an academic perspective. And, uh, of course, as you know, I, I wear a couple of hats in in this arena. One is that I'm an evangelical believer, and another is I'm a, a university-trained uh, Ph.D. historian. Um, and so I felt like I, I would have something to contribute on this, and especially in light of the, the 300th birthday, I sure. thought it was an opportunity for me to reintroduce him to um, hopefully many interested readers. In the second half of the conversation, I want to talk about historiography and biography mm-hmm. in terms of, a, of an evangelical frame and how we understand that as, as scholars and as, uh, as evangelical readers. But before getting to that, I, I, I want to pick up on what you just said, and that is that you wanted to reintroduce George Whitfield uh, to a new generation 300 years after his birth. The fact that George Whitfield would have to be reintroduced is, is pretty stunning in and of itself. It sure is. I mean, he, you know, you read a lot of biographies of religious figures and, and you say, well, he was, you know, the most important religious leader of the time or something. But with Whitfield, it's it's much bigger than that. He was the best known person in Britain and America in the middle of the 18th century, period. Uh, and, and so for him to be, you know, nearly totally forgotten, especially at the uh, pop culture level in America, uh, I mean, we we are ignorant about all kinds of historical things in America, but but I mean, for for someone that famous on the eve of the revolution, you know, he he's the most famous person, uh, and for us to have forgotten him is not only a shame, I think, for for Christians to have forgotten him, but it's a real deficiency in American history too. So I thought there was an acute need there. When speaking of George Whitfield, you make the argument that he was actually the most famous celebrity on both sides of the Atlantic, virtually the most famous individual other than perhaps the King of England uh, in the entire English-speaking world. 
That's right. And, you know, it is true that probably more people knew uh, the King of England, <laughs> you know, George I, George II, George III at the time. But far more people had seen Whitfield, had read uh, Whitfield's journals and sermons, uh, maybe even had, had gotten a chance to meet Whitfield in that Anglo-American world than had seen or met or read anything by the king. And, and I think that Whitfield not only is the most influential uh, evangelical preacher of, of the Great Awakening, um, but he is arguably, and secular scholars have made this argument, that, that he is, he's arguably the first celebrity in human history. <laughs> I mean, and when you think about what a profoundly celebrity-centered, driven culture in which we live, I mean, this man is of titanic importance, not just for Christians, but for all people to understand who he was. Well, in thinking about that, he was a celebrity in the midst of other titanic figures. I mean, his life intersects with Jonathan Edwards, both the Wesleys, and uh, you could go on and on. Uh, he corresponded with everyone from uh, from unknown dissenting pastors in the United States to Count Zinzendorf. Uh, yes. You know, it's hard to imagine how uh, George Whitfield could have gained this influence uh, apart from this massive network of people with whom he had some of the most interesting, if if testy, relationships over the course of a lifetime. Yes, and and he's the linchpin. Uh, Whitfield is the linchpin. Uh, he he brings the most number of people together in the evangelical network that is so crucial uh, to supporting and praying for, and and preaching in the Great Awakening of the 18th century. As you said, he has testy relationships, and sometimes far more than testy relationships. Uh, when it gets down to John Wesley, especially, there's a, there's a very contentious relationship there. Um, but he is uh, at the center, and, and part of that is because uh, he is uh, uh, apparently just a phenomenally talented preacher, uh, incredibly, I would say, anointed preacher. Um, and, and so that is part of the key. But we also forget that Whitfield was, he must have been the hardest working pastor of the 18th century uh, in terms of travel, uh, especially. I mean, and, and he really, I think, works himself to death um, and, and because he is preaching two, three, four, five times a day, seven days a week uh, for years and decades on end, uh, just relentless efforts. I mean, it's hard to calculate. Some people say he probably preached 18 or 20,000 sermons in his career, uh, and he, he is so sold out for the gospel that he it just drives him to, to his grave. And I think probably Whitfield would say happily. <laughs> well, as happily, a matter of fact, because that yes. means he, he gets yes. to be with the Lord. Well, but happily in another sense, too, because you make an argument I have not seen elsewhere, but frankly, I think is key to understanding many preachers. And uh, you point out that preaching was where Whitfield was happiest. And, uh, and, and when he had moments of, of what we might call depression, or at least a depressive state, uh, he would recover by preaching. Yes, yes. And I mean, I, I think sometimes it, it, it was, it, it's strange to watch in retrospect, I mean, how committed he was to getting back on the road. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, 
the the most uh, striking time is when he and his wife had a, a child, that, their first child, who died in infancy. Um, and, it, I mean, they had barely had the funeral before he hit the road again. Um, and so I, I think, you know, you can see in retrospect that this probably was – uh, in some ways, even to an unhealthy uh, level in ways that he didn't even see himself. Um, but I think uh, all of us as, as that are Christians can admire his just, I, I mean, almost Indeed. unparalleled zeal for, zeal for the gospel. He was indefatigable. I mean, there, there, there is simply mm. abundant evidence that, uh, that nothing could keep him down. You know, being sick nearly unto death and, and being bled, uh, as was the medical treatment of the time, in transatlantic voyages, uh, arriving mm. in the United States, only to be so sick that he would uh, he, he he would only pray that the Lord would use this sickness to purge him of uh, mm. of, of whatever sin might remain in his life. But th- that takes me back to what I think a lot of people don't know. Uh, we'll talk about the historiography in a moment, but uh, when you look at the early years of George Whitfield's life, you take us into an incredible struggle in a very young man at a strategic point in history— uh, baptized into the Church of England, and and yet struggling with uh, the the very notion of what it would mean to be a Christian in order to be saved, and and what it would mean later to be converted. Just, just kind of walk us through that, because it's a story that becomes paradigmatic, I would argue, for evangelical Christians, and uh, and yet there were few uh, antecedents, few models for Whitfield to uh, to to have understood at the time. Yes, he. Uh, grows up in an Anglican Church of England family. Um, his his uh, father, um, his, his birth father, uh, dies when he's young, and and then his mother remarries, remarries unhappily. Um, but he he grows up in the church. Um, it's a it's a parish model, uh, very much of understanding that you're you're born into the Church of England. You're baptized as an infant. Uh, the the default understanding is that you're part of the Church of England and the British nation, and and it's just automatic that you're. Of course, you're you're a Christian. Um, but uh, I I think because as a Christian, I see the Lord was was drawing him. Um, but he begins to um, contemplate first a, a pastoral career. Uh, which you know you didn't necessarily to need to be an on fire Christian to, to to pursue that in those days. I mean, it, it was a state position because it was with the official state church, uh, and usually that entailed going to Oxford or Cambridge. He was from a relatively poor family, and so he didn't know how he could ever go to Oxford. But then he realized that some students worked as what they called servitors uh, that, that would serve the rich kid students at, at Oxford, right. and, and that was the way he could pay for his uh, scholarship to go to, to Oxford. And so he went there and started learning about theology, but the key was meeting uh, the Wesley brothers, uh, who themselves would say later that they were not converted yet, um, but they were able to seed him with a key emerging evangelical texts uh, that introduced Whitfield to the idea of uh, the new birth. Of course, the new birth being a a biblical concept, but uh, he had never understood that there needed to be this life-transforming encounter with Christ. Um, And and he began to uh, walk towards that with the help of the Wesleys and some of the other new Methodists uh, that were there at Oxford. Uh, and reading these texts, and, and he went through a, a lengthy 
uh, conversion ordeal. I mean, in those days, it usually took at least months to break through, if not years. Uh, but finally, in the mid-1730s, as a student at Oxford, he had a very dramatic conversion experience that took, put his life on a completely new path. Well, we'll talk about the Wesleys in particular in just a moment. But in terms of Methodism, to what extent did Whitfield understand himself to be a Methodist? And, uh, and if so, for what duration of his life in ministry? I think that he would have understood Methodism, uh, and as the Wesleys originally understood Methodism, as simply a, a spiritual reform movement within the Anglican Church, um, you know, getting people uh, serious about devotion to the Lord, about holiness, uh, and introducing people to the idea that this nominal parish kind of Christianity is not at all uh, biblical discipleship. Um, and, and so, and, and of course, the core point being the new birth, that everyone needs to be converted. Um, that, I think, was, if, if that's what we mean by uh, Methodism, I think, I think that Whitfield considered himself to be a Methodist uh, for his whole career. But, it, of course, it was not until after Whitfield died uh, that the Wesleyan Methodist uh, movement within the Anglican Church actually broke away and started a new uh, denomination. I think that, that Whitfield would have opposed uh, a formal uh, Methodist breakaway from the Anglican Church, because even though Whitfield was constantly fighting with Anglican Church officials about ministry and theology, he always considered himself a reformer within the Anglican Church, and he was happy as anything to just call himself a, a, you know, a Methodist Episcopal or a Methodist Anglican. In terms of the Wesley brothers, uh, Whitfield obviously had a very close relationship with them, although it was incredibly tested by private conflict and public controversy. Uh, something you document in your book, uh, and this comes up eight or nine times in different chapters, uh, there was a sense in which Whitfield had a friendship that endured even the public controversy, and, and even in helping the two brothers, John and Charles, to uh, restore their relationship in a time of alienation. It happened more than once. But uh, but we are really talking about a, a division within evangelicalism that is still very relevant today, and that is a division between Calvinism and uh, and Arminianism, classically depicted between Whitfield and the Wesley. So how did that come about, and and draw a line to today? How, how does that play out in contemporary evangelicalism? Oh, it's so relevant today. <laughs> you know, it's it's it, it's amazing to see this emerging. Uh, among the kind of founding fathers of, of the modern evangelical movement, um, what happens is that Whitfield sees John Wesley in particular, uh, who is uh, older than Whitfield and, and more established in ministry, uh, he sees John Wesley in the 1730s as a kind of spiritual father. I mean, he calls him that, a, a father to him. Uh, which is particularly important to Whitfield because he had an absent father. Um, and so the Wesleys mentored him, uh, told him what to read, uh, gave him a vision for what this kind of renewed Protestant uh, Anglican ministry could be like, introduced him to the concept of the new birth. But then uh, when Whitfield started preaching, he became uh, popular uh, very quickly. Um, almost overnight in, in England, uh, he was drawing crowds that very quickly um, exceeded the seating capacity of the churches in which he was speaking. And then he went to London 
and began drawing followers in the thousands and then in the tens of thousands <laughs> just it took off like un, unlike anything anybody had seen and there were times in london where he would report crowds uh as high as one point he reported a crowd of 80,000 people <laughs> that came to hear him preach and is that an exaggeration by whitfield probably but even if there was 40,000 people there in a pre-amplification age it's it's just really almost unlike anything that had happened in human history um this complicated his relationship with John Wesley uh, because he started um, becoming much better known than either of the Wesleys. And Whitfield saw this burgeoning ministry happening in front of him. And uh, pretty quickly, I think the tone changed. He went from treating Wesley like John Wesley, like a spiritual father to a kind of lieutenant in his ministry. And it wasn't too long before they would start having these exchanges where Whitfield would say, John, I need you to be in Bristol uh, next Friday. No, no, I don't care what your schedule is. I told you you need to be there. <laughs> and I, I think um, John Wesley and Whitfield are both strong personalities. And it's almost inevitable, I think, that they were going to fall out over something. Uh, and it became... Uh, this this theological issue which I think they took both took very seriously, but we also have to remember that they were both very big personalities. No, and I fully understand and, that. But when you're talking about this theological division, I mean, it was massive, and and as you mm-hmm. indicate, uh, it came rather uh, I won't say naturally, but it did come uh, uh, early to the Wesleys because their mother Susanna had uh, had inculcated in them a basic Arminian instinct and a, 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 an opposition to the doctrine of election. Meanwhile, Whitfield can't imagine Christian orthodoxy in anything other than fairly explicit Reformed terms. So this was also a theological collision that that seems to be virtually inevitable. Absolutely, and and so. As that uh, transformation happens in Whitfield's ministry, Whitfield is uh, overtly and aggressively and uh, in a very principled way a Calvinist, and and he uh, integrates it into his gospel preaching. Uh, I, I mean, so it, it's very overt, uh, and so a clash is is brewing between uh, the two of them over the difference between. Uh, you know, election and predestination, God's uh, sovereign control over the salvation of the elect, uh, versus Wesley saying that you know that Christ had died for all people and that and that all people could be saved if they if they chose to accept God's offer of, of salvation. And uh, so this this was brewing. They were trying. Uh, I think Whitfield, maybe a little bit more than John Wesley, were trying to avert a, a public blow-up over this. But as you said, I mean, the Wesleys kind of got this from the cradle, that Calvinism was abhorrent, uh, and they were arguing more and more about it. And then finally, uh, in the early 1740s, John Wesley began preaching publicly against Calvinism and then turned that into a, a publication, Free Grace, uh, which denounced Calvinism in, I think, the most vicious terms, uh, say, you know, saying that you, 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 you represent God, he said, as worse than the devil. <laughs> so, That's right. And you know, everybody knew that he was talking about Whitfield. 
Yeah, and, and every, everyone also knew that it was very much centered on the doctrine of perseverance because uh, Wesley mm. was particularly concerned uh, that uh, one indeed could lose one's uh, salvation, which uh, which Whitfield saw as uh, as not only in violation of Scripture, but as running against the very logic of the new birth that both the Wesleys preached. And uh, so, a- again, these are issues that still continue as a matter of controversy today. It, that's right. And, and I think that we can understand it a little bit better. I mean, because I would say most mainstream Baptists today, for instance, whether they call themselves Calvinists or not, they tend to believe in the perseverance uh, exactly. of the saints. And, and, yes. and so uh, Wesley does come off, if you understand the, the details of his theology, I think for many evangelicals today, uh, even people who would say that they're Arminians, uh, might balk a little bit at whether it's being able to lose your salvation. Wesley uh, held open the possibility that people could become uh, perfectly holy in this life, uh, so a kind of perfectionist theology. Uh, and, and, and then, of course, there were the problems about election and, and predestination that they argued over. So these are, these are deeply theological issues, uh, and, and almost to, to our—I mean, it speaks to the theological sophistication of the era. Absolutely. Uh, that, that yeah. you know, these, these celebrity preachers are also highly principled uh, theologically— uh, and and uh, to the point where Whitfield, um, I think almost to a fault, is willing uh, to to have these fights with other evangelical leaders very publicly about what to many evangelicals might strike them as sort of finer points of theology. Well, I think but that's it, another it, big issue here in that we're looking at a, an Oxford-educated uh, Anglican mm-hmm. priest. He had taken holy orders. He he, he had. Uh, the equivalent of two degrees from Oxford. And uh, and so we're yes. talking about someone with a great deal of theological sophistication, but that raises the question, um, why is it that he's not remembered that way? I, I, he he never took the life of the uh, the intellect as a Christian with anything less than seriousness, but he was often not taken as a very serious man theologically. I really think that that is mostly uh, um, a later development uh, of people who, frankly, I think, had not taken the time to read Whitfield's sermons, um, because they they think, oh, well, here's this prop- popular evangelical preacher, um, and and you you make cultural associations with with that, of that you know going down through Billy Sunday and people like that. You know, you you must not be really that serious, but when you read Whitfield's uh, sermons. They are uh, highly uh, theologically articulate, uh, and and not only that, but they're classically articulate. Uh, there there are uh, sometimes Latin phrases that he Absolutely. uses. He references the church fathers. Um, uh, you know, he references the history of the Reformation routinely. Um, they they are heavy duty sermons that I think would not fly in a lot of evangelical churches today, but we also have to remember they're evangelistic sermons. Indeed. I mean, mean, you think they're so heavyweight biblically and theologically, but they're meant to reach non-Christians. And that tells you that we're also looking at a lost world of a heavily biblically literate culture, which was Anglo-America in the 18th century.
It really tells us something that Thomas Kidd actually argues that George Whitfield may, in the modern sense, be the first major world celebrity. We live in a culture in which celebrity is simply taken for granted. It's a part of the cultural landscape, but it was not always so. And when we look at George Whitfield in his historical context, he is a major celebrity. But of course, we're having this conversation because he was also a great deal more. As you mentioned the Reformation, if you, if you look at Luther, uh, historically speaking, one of the things we note is that the Gutenberg Revolution took place shortly before the, the Lutheran Reformation, and in many ways uh, it, it explains how the use of the new medium of the printing press was, uh, was very instrumental, not just in terms of the dissemination of Luther's arguments, but uh, even the publication of, uh, of, of the Bible in German in Luther's translation that was central to his understanding of, uh, of the Bible for the people. Similarly, looking at uh, George Whitfield, you're looking at a specific moment when the British Empire is in one sense uh, at its height in terms of the transatlantic uh, uh, commerce, uh, transatlantic shipping, transportation, and uh, uh, an English-speaking culture on both sides of the Atlantic at, at this point under the uh, sovereignty of one monarch. Uh, to what degree is that also a, very much a part of Whitfield's uh, influence and, and impact on both sides of the Atlantic? Whitfield's genius, I think, is that he is able to pair uh, deeply uh, theologically sophisticated, principled preaching and ministry up with um, the latest technologies and, and methods in communication. And that runs from everything from his uh, publishing networks, which were extensive uh, and transatlantic, uh, to his own methods of preaching, uh, which were extemporaneous. Uh, and also, of course, he went to, into the fields when the, the churches would no longer hold his audiences or when he was banned from the churches because of, of jealousy uh, by, by other uh, ministers. Um, so, so at every turn, Whitfield, uh, and I think this is speaking of instructive for today, he's a wonderful example of uh, of a, a ministry leader who is is very very uh, traditional and learned uh, in in his theology, his preaching, and his ministry, but is also willing to employ new techniques uh, to bring uh, you know the old old story uh, to a new audience. Um, I, I think that that's highly instructive for evangelicals today. Uh, being up-to-date does not mean that you have to go liberal on your theology, uh, but I think it often will mean that you need to employ new tactics uh, to reach people, uh, podcasts, for instance. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, Indeed. I think we, we need to be attentive to the, those kinds of changes. And so uh, I suspect you'll want to talk about Ben Franklin, his longtime friend. But people say, now, why, why were Franklin— and Whitfield, such good friends and business associates for so long when we know that Franklin was a deist because he called himself a deist, uh, and they're not on the same page spiritually. That started, I think, because Whitfield, when he came to the colonies, when he came to Philadelphia for the first time, he needed to establish a node in his publishing network in America. And so he comes to town and he says, not give me the best Christian media man in town, but he just said, who's the best media man, period? 
And they all said, well, go talk to Ben Franklin. He's the best in the business. And, and so Whitfield was willing to pair with, with Franklin, and Franklin was more than happy to do it because Franklin was not famous at all at the time. And uh, Franklin saw, you know, dollar signs or pound signs, as it were. Uh, when, when he saw Whitfield, he said, this guy, is, I'm going to make a ton of money off of this guy. And he did. But they both became, uh, you know, celebrities in, in their own way. And yet Whitfield was totally willing, absolutely transparent in urging Franklin to accept Christ as his Savior. And, and continuously so. Of decades. Yeah, continuously so. He came back to it. And even after uh, Franklin had written his epitaph, uh, Whitfield used that as an opportunity to share the gospel, to call him to, uh, to faith in Christ and uh, to suggest an even better epitaph uh, than the one that Franklin had written for himself. That's right. And my, my, my favorite is, is when uh, Whitfield writes to him and kind of pokes at him about the electricity experiments. And he, he says, Mr. Franklin, he said in the 1750s, Mr. Franklin, I'm, uh, I know you've made such wonderful progress into studying the mysteries of electricity. Now I urge you, my friend, to study the mystery of the new birth. <laughs> Never miss an opportunity. Never miss an opportunity. Yeah. Okay, so I did want to ask you about Franklin, but uh, I want to ask you about some others as well. Uh, it, it's just hard to imagine. I can remember the television program, you may remember, with uh, Steve Allen, Meeting of the Minds, that took place on mm. PBS years ago, in which he would try to recreate a conversation of people from different eras. So he put Marie Antoinette and, uh, and Martin Luther and John F. Kennedy, you know, in the room together by actors and try to imagine that conversation. The amazing thing is, Whitfield actually had that kind of conversation with some of the most incredible contemporaries. And one of them was Jonathan Edwards. And uh, yes. you, you can't talk about the Great Awakening and you can't talk about evangelicalism in America without reference to both of them. Track, track that relationship for us a bit. Jonathan Edwards was, of course, uh, only an occasional itinerant, unlike Whitfield, who traveled uh, all over uh, England and America and Scotland. Um, but Edwards had uh, influenced Whitfield already uh, because of Edwards' uh, faithful narrative of the surprising work of God in Northampton, his great revival account, uh, which I think is probably the most important extra-biblical account of a revival maybe in Christian history. Um, and that was about the 1734-35 revival in Northampton. Whitfield had read it and instantly thought, I have to meet this, this pastor. And so when uh, Whitfield came to uh, New England, uh, in 1740, he uh, went out of his way, literally went out of his way to go into uh, the back country of, of Massachusetts to be able to meet uh, Edwards. And so they, they met there in, in the fall of 1740, uh, and it went uh, fabulously well. Uh, and Whitfield preached multiple times. He would, he'd go, would go back to Northampton uh, later in the 1740s. Too. And so they, they established a, a, a good friendship, though it was also fraught with some tension because Edwards, by that point, was already starting to develop some qualms about the excesses of the Great Awakening, and he thought that Whitfield was feeding into it. Uh, for instance, and, and they actually took a, a ride together uh, on, on horseback uh, to go to Whitfield's next stop, and Edwards said, now, we have a private moment here. Can I can I ask you, 
why are you talking so much about how many ministers are unconverted? Don't you think that's a little rude? <laughs> and he also he said, I'm, I'm not so sure, George, about this business about spiritual impulses and sort of, you know, the kind of thing where you, you, you would feel like you were getting an impulse from the Holy Spirit that you needed to do this or, or preach on this text and so forth. You need to be careful about that. Because you know you can easily mistake the the spirit and 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 the flesh, or mistake the the the, the flesh for the spirit, and so they had a, a little bit of tension in their relationship. That in in a strange uh, way, Edwards allowed to become public uh, in the, by the mid 1740s. Uh, they never had a spectacular blow up the way that John Wesley and Whitfield did. But it's it's interesting to see that that in these kind of founding fathers figures, and I th- I would say it's Edwards, Whitfield, and Wesley are, are the great triumvirate, of the, at least in the English speaking world, of the Great Awakening. That there was really serious tension between them over theology and over ministry tactics. You know, a couple of thoughts I had in reading your book. One of them is that uh, we take for granted the ability to communicate so quickly. And uh, mm. more in the case of Whitfield and Edwards, it seemed to me that a part of the problem was they were so distant and communication was so difficult. You could imagine uh, beyond the real conflicts, you could imagine any number of others. And, and there was continual propaganda. And so, you know, they're, they're hearing things about one another. And, and in particular, everybody's hearing about Whitfield. And uh, it, it wasn't all flattering and, and might not have been all real. I, I had another thought when it came to, uh, to Whitfield. You helped me a lot, but I'm still struggling with it. Uh, to what extent was Whitfield an enthusiast? Because, uh, you know, that was one of the major concerns of his contemporaries. It's one of my major concerns reading some of his sermons, I'm st- especially the early Whitfield. I'm, t- I'm still trying to figure this out. There is... Uh a great deal of emphasis in the Great Awakening across the board uh, on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in revival. And, um, and and I think some of it is the kind of thing that all evangelicals would affirm to some extent, that you need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit for revival. That this is, you know, that except for maybe some devoted followers of Charles Finney, you know, you, that you right. need a work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, to, to precipitate revival. I mean, that, that was just very commonly held. But on an individual basis, what can we expect uh, on, on a day-to-day basis from the Holy Spirit as far as uh, guidance and, and leading? Uh, and, and how closely tied is that to uh, all of what Scripture says and no more? Um, and so, for instance, um, Whitfield um, believed that his uh, his decision to seek ordination as an Anglican minister was confirmed by a very specific revelatory dream that he had about a meeting with, with a bishop who would give him a gift of five gold coins. Uh, and, and this is what Whitfield said. I mean, he said he had the dream, he was summoned to the meeting, and sure enough, the bishop gave him the coins. <laughs> you know, so those are the kind of things where it's kind of hard to know what to make of that. I mean, you know, the way I feel is, well, that, I guess that happened or it didn't happen. I don't, I don't, you know, he either had the dream or he didn't. Um, but it, it's, it's for a lot of evangelicals today, it would seem a little exotic. I mean, there, there are times where Whitfield would be getting ready to preach and he would pray, Lord, show me what to to. Uh, speak on. There was one time in Philadelphia where he felt that the Lord 
through the Spirit, told him, preach on deism. Um, and, and he said, Lord, I've never spoken on deism bef- before publicly. And he, Well, speak on deism. And he said that later on, someone told him that three or four of the leading deists in the city were there. And he said, aha, that's why the Lord told me to do that. But it, these are the kind of things, this is what Edwards is getting a little nervous about. Sure. Is, you, you know, at some point, these kind of extra-biblical um, revelations, impulses, guiding, you know, and it, it can get out of control. That's what Edwards' concern is. But, I mean, I think all of these people, including Edwards, including Edwards, go from a, a kind of a mode of this, the, the, the move of God in the Great Awakening is a world of wonders, unlike anything we've ever been part of. Um, and, and, and they're really, I think, open to the work of the Holy Spirit in ways that they had never been before in their life. And then as time went on, they got a little chastened uh, by the excesses that they saw, including especially among some really radical folks who there's absolutely no doubt that they were uh, chaotic enthusiasts. You know, anyone, so watching, the- yeah, anyone watching television for the last 20 years in terms of, uh, of some so-called Christian television, knows exactly what worried Edwards. And and yet I think it's important to say that Whitfield never represented any of that. Uh, I I think the one thing that comes through crystalline in in your book as well as in any credible book on Whitfield is that he never allowed that to distract him from the preaching of the gospel. It was never something that uh, became a substitute for his preaching of Scripture and gospel. Well, that's right. I mean, it was was always at the center. And I would say, you know, he— pushed about how much we depend on God uh, in, in every area, in salvation, in revival, in um, blessing the, the, the preaching uh, of the Word, uh, blessing the preaching of the gospel. I mean, I, I think we all can take a cue from him about just how dependent we are on God for everything. And any, uh, any bit of success in, in ministry, in church work, uh, at, at Whitfield would be constantly reminding all of us that it all is dependent on God. Um, but he also was testing some limits about your personal walk with God, the leading of the Spirit, that I think, yeah, it made Edwards a little uncomfortable and probably would make some of us uncomfortable today, too. Now, there's so much to talk about, but I want to make reference to uh, Whitfield's impact in higher education for just a moment. He visited Harvard hmm. and Yale and wasn't impressed by either. Uh, the, the graduate of Oxford uh, was neither impressed with their academics nor with the spiritual state of students and faculty and was actually involved in a controversy in which he, he openly claimed that, uh, that many of the supposedly uh, uh, Christian clergy faculty of Harvard were indeed unconverted men. And, yeah. uh, and then you have to tell the story of how he, with Ben Franklin, basically started what became the University of Pennsylvania. Yes, he he has a an abiding interest in Christian education, um, and I think that that draws on his own Oxford experience and how both educationally and spiritually meaningful it was there. Um, and so he is very critical, especially of Harvard, Yale too at, at at times. Though I think there were more evangelical students at Yale during the Great Awakening than at Harvard. Um, but Ben Franklin, and uh, you know, by this point, they've, they've been friends. Franklin and Whitfield have been friends for a decade. Um, 
but there was a building that was erected in uh, in Philadelphia just for Whitfield's preaching. Uh, and there were some of his supporters in Philadelphia had hoped that Whitfield would permanently relocate to Philadelphia, which he was never going to do. Um, but this building uh, kind of became a, a sort of an albatross. I mean, what do we do with this thing? Because Whitfield's almost never here. Well, Franklin, of course, is a consummate entrepreneur, uh, and he thinks we need a college. There's no there's no college in in Pennsylvania, and so let let's turn Whitfield's new building, as it was called. Uh, when when Whitfield's not around, we'll use it as an academy and then and then a college. And so Franklin developed a proposal uh, for this for this new academy and would become a college. Um, and it was uh, cutting edge stuff for education at the time. I mean, it was moving a little bit away from the classics, focusing more on English literature and some of Franklin's favorites, uh, it, a little more practical education and that kind of thing that certainly had major uh, impact on 18th and 19th century educational trends. And he sent the proposal off to Whitfield because he knew he needed Whitfield's blessing. It's Whitfield's building that the thing's going to meet, meet in. And Whitfield looked at it and he said, I like everything about this except for one main thing. It lacks Christ. <laughs> and, so, and, you know, you can just imagine Franklin saying, I knew he was going to say that. But, but he mentioned, Franklin mentioned Christianity, but it was really late in the proposal and in a very obligatory way, which, of course, it, you know, it, it speaks to what's going to happen with so much of ed American education founded as Christian, Absolutely. Uh, but, but not with the strong foundation, and it falls away. You could just see that that was what was going to happen with Penn. And it happened very sure quickly. Enough, it, yeah, very quickly. I, I can remember walking the first time on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania and finding that great statue, life-size, yes. Whitfield on the campus, and doing a little test of my own, asking as many people who passed me if they had any idea who this was and why it was there, as if they could explain it to me, and not one could. Not not a single student living in the residence there had a clue uh, who George Whitfield was. And Yes, and that, that statue went up, you know, 100 years ago when I think Penn would have made more of a pretense, at least, to a, a kind of Christian tradition. Right. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I think virtually no one on that campus has any idea who this guy is. And that explains, at least in part, uh, his reticence, that is, Whitfield's contemporary res, uh, reticence uh, concerning the future of the university. That explains why he, he lent public support to the College of New Jersey, uh, now mm -hmm. known as Princeton University. I, I need to ask you another question, and this is one uh, that you handle very bravely, and, uh, and and I think very carefully in your book at several points, talk about Whitfield and the issue of slavery. Right. Uh, the issue of slavery is uh, the greatest moral problem with Whitfield's uh, life story. Uh, he is very much a man of his time um, in that he uh, does not see anything per se wrong with the idea of Christians uh, owning or even trafficking in slaves. Um, and so uh, in the early 1740s, he does issue a, a letter, a public letter, uh, that's very critical of what he had seen of the treatment of slaves by slave masters in the American South. Um, and he says, you treat these people viciously, like they're dogs. Uh, and and, and uh, this is immoral for, for Christians to do this. So he knew that being abusive to slaves was wrong, but he didn't 
understand uh, that um, that owning slaves per se, especially given what the system was like with all the stealing of people away, kidnapping, stealing children away from their parents in Africa and so forth, uh, he didn't see the, the immorality that was right at the core of the whole uh, system. And I think that, uh, you know, Whitfield, he, he, as he goes on, he's developing more uh, slave master converts in the South. And these people start, frankly, to, to, they offered to give him slaves to help fund his ministry. Uh, they offered to set him up on plantations, uh, in, with plantations in the South. And Whitfield gets the idea in the early 1740s that he wants to open an orphanage in Georgia. Um, which, which was a common move by a number of evangelicals at the time. Um, and that the way he would do it was that he would bring in these orphans and that they would set up a plantation um, and uh, run it with slave labor uh, and that they would make a lot of money and for, fund the orphanage and everything would be great. And to modern observers, of course, this is just totally unacceptable. I mean, do I, why don't you see the moral contradiction? Well, I think that the problem is, and this is a, a, a bigger problem with biblical interpretation, is that Whitfield really needed a Bible verse that said, thou shalt not own slaves. But as you, I don't have to tell you, I mean, the Bible it's, you know, says slaves obey your masters, and, and slave masters don't abuse your slaves, and this sort of thing. And so he didn't really have anyone around him saying, don't you know that slavery is immoral? Um, and so as a man of his time, he became complicit, became a slave owner, and didn't even slave, free his slaves at his, at his death. So it, it really is, is a, a problem with his life story. I'm a great admirer of Whitfield, but I felt like I needed to really dig into that issue and not try to paper it over. Well, and, and I think you handle that very well and very honestly, but it also humbles us from putting anyone on too high a pedestal, because uh, here we're looking at the indispensable man of uh, yes. of English-speaking evangelicalism, and he had some horrifying moral faults, as uh, as do all, and uh, that is a humbling realization. In, in terms of history, I want to ask you one last question, because Whitfield died uh, in 1770, uh, six years before the Declaration of Independence, but, uh, you know, how do we place him in terms of the revolutionary times and even the American Revolution? Because I have seen documents, and you cite some of these, very shortly after the Revolution began, in which they're citing Whitfield as a as a basic supporter of what became the American Revolution. Right, and, and there's a, a remarkable episode, even before the Declaration, but the, the war had started in 1775, and there's a group of Continental soldiers who are marching up uh, to uh, attack uh, Quebec, and they're there in Newburyport, Massachusetts, um, where Whitfield is, is buried. They're there on the Sabbath, and you don't march on the Sabbath in those days. And so they have a church service in the church where Whitfield is buried. And then the officers go down to the crypt, as the story goes, and they opened up Whitfield's tomb, and they took uh, pieces of his clothing off of his dead body. <laughs> and they, they cut him up and distributed these pieces of clerical collar and wristbands as Anglican ministers would wear. They distributed these pieces of fabric to the troops. And they never explained, these officers never explained why they did this, what seems bizarre to us. It almost seems like something you would expect Catholics to do. 
you know, like like Whitfield is a is a Protestant saint or something. But I, I think what they were saying in their inarticulate way was who Whitfield is is who we are as American patriots. And I, I think what what that meant to them was that liberty was a sacred principle to them. And also that Whitfield is simply the most famous person still in the, in the 1770s. He's the most famous person. His, his memory is hardly flagged at all by that point. And so um, even though it's probably not very good theologically, they, they're just kind of saying we need Whitfield's blessing. What would Whitfield have thought about the revolution? It's hard to say. I mean, you know, he's, he's dead for five years when the war starts. I, I think he was a very British person and understood the importance of the British Empire uh, for the force of Protestantism in his, in his day. But it is true, he's a longtime friends with Franklin. He's, they, we forget about this, but Whitfield is in attendance when Franklin testifies against the Stamp Act before Parliament in 1766. Whitfield's there, showing his support for Franklin. So I tend to think, I'll explain more in the book, but I tend to think that Whitfield would have been sympathetic to the resistance movement, but probably stopped short of supporting revolution. You know, in, in terms of my understanding, I'm not arguing with you at all. I, I take your argument at face value based upon your research and analysis. But I, I think in many ways the bigger issue for Whitfield would have been that singular word that you inserted just a moment ago, and that's Protestantism. Uh, mm. I think he, he would have been more concerned that, uh, that what would continue in the United States would be a Protestant uh, religious uh, majority by, by either the protection of King George or by whatever means necessary. Because uh, th- there are references in his journals and elsewhere to the fact that the, the one thing he wanted to make sure didn't happen is that the French and the Spanish did not get control of the New World. Yes. And he is uh, – for, for – uh, modern observers, he is stridently anti-Catholic, um, but it's an era of imperial war. I mean, they're just fresh off the Seven Years' War, which was this great clash between the British on one side and the French and the Spanish on the other. Uh, and to people like Whitfield, this looked like the the great apocalyptic war between Catholics and Protestants that we've been waiting for since the Reformation. Um, and and that, so that's very much the world, and, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, in a geopolitical sense, what he cares about most is freedom for Protestantism and that Catholics wouldn't take over and destroy the Protestant movement as they had in some places in Europe. When you write a book on George Whitfield in the United States, within uh, evangelical reach and range, you were entering an argument and you had to know you were. And uh, and you were entering an argument that continues, but uh, one you address in your book. This gets to the issue of how scholarship should be done, and uh, and how an evangelical functions as a scholar. And uh, so, so talk about that. Why, in that sense, did you write this book, and and what were you trying to prove? There are, uh, as I said, a number of earlier biographies of Whitfield, and in the 1970s in particular, uh, there was a sharp divergence between uh, what you might call more pietistic biographers who were not in the academy and the academic biographers of uh, Whitfield. Uh, Some of your listeners, I'm sure, will know Arnold Dalimore's uh, wonderful two-volume biography 
uh, of Whitfield, which I think in it in the details of Whitfield's career uh, is just a wonderful account of his his ministry. And, and Dalmore was a pastor uh, and writing a very admiring biography. Uh, they're not uncritical, but but admiring uh, biography of Whitfield as a great man of God. Uh, there were uh, academic biographies of Whitfield that that came out, um, and probably the most controversial one being Harry Stout's The Divine Dramatist, uh, which placed Whitfield, I think, in many ways quite legitimately within the context of theater culture in the 18th century, because in, in his teens, uh, Whitfield was absolutely obsessed with the theater and it, before he was converted um, and, and all the time play acting. Um, and Stout uh, implied, uh, or, and, and maybe explicitly, uh, that, um, that Whitfield was basically, even as a preacher, just an actor, um, and that he was a public persona who thrived on celebrity, but that there didn't seem to be much in Stout's biography of Whitfield other than this public celebrity figure. Uh, a number of Christians uh, took exception to Stout's biography, um, and most famously, John Piper, uh, who I admire very much, <laughs> said that uh, Stout's biography was the most sustained piece of historical cynicism he had ever read. Uh, and, and so I thought, well, now, here I am, and with one foot in, in academia, the other foot in the evangelical church, um, maybe there's a way that I can bridge these, these differences. And so what I'm trying to do in the biography is, is, is take the lessons that we know from academic scholarship on evangelicalism, for sure, but on things like what you said, the, the growing commercial and transportation networks of the 18th century, what we know about the development of slavery, which has just grown so much. We understand so much more now than we did 30 years ago. These are just things that Dalimore would not have seen or probably even been interested in. So I'm able, I think, to appreciate Whitfield's accomplishments as a Christian, but also see him as part of that broader world. So that's what I was trying to do in the biography. Well, I want to be clear. I think you've done it astoundingly well. Uh, it, it, the, the book you. is incredibly well written, and uh, and I think it's it's a real act of intellectual courage, but it's also an act of theological sympathy. And I, I think that that's that's what we need to uh, we need to affirm is possible. I had a recent conversation in this series with Grant Wacker, who's written mm. uh, recently on Billy Graham, and uh, in the opening pages of that book makes very clear. I'm going to tell the whole story as best an historian uh, uh, is able, or, or at least he, as an historian, is able. But he says, I'm writing this as an evangelical Christian who, uh, who as a boy, was taken by his parents to hear Billy Graham preach. You were not, as a boy, taken by your parents to hear George Whitfield preach. <laughs> but George Whitfield still is a character that you clearly admire, uh, not without yes, reservation, but you do admire him. Now, what does that say about how evangelicals should function in scholarship and how evangelicals should function as readers? Well, it's a real challenge, I mean, because... Uh, for so long, uh, academia has definitely been dominated by uh, secular perspectives or even people who might be church-going, uh, but who sort of check their faith at the academy door. Um, and I think, uh, and I, I learned everything I know about this from my uh, doctoral advisor, George Marsden, um, who I think was a, a, a path-breaking figure in, in this. 
every generation, whatever our, our, our standing vis-a-vis -vis culture, uh, we need a, a vital intellectual witness within academia and, and even more specifically within academic publishing. Uh, and so, you know, Wacker's book is with Harvard University Press. Um, Marsden, before me and now me, we published with Yale University Press. Um, I think this is obviously a, a kind of a niche calling, but there needs to be Christians who are engaged uh, as best they can at the highest level of academic discussions, knowing that you'll take flack, knowing that you can't speak to your audience in the same way that you could with an exclusively Christian press, uh, knowing that you, you are going to be working with and speaking to non-Christians as part of the process, uh, but but also being open about your your own faith, uh, I, I think it's vital for the Christian intellectual witness and, and witness in general to have certain people uh, in that role in, in in the academy. And I have to say, you know, I I have had nothing but a positive experience working with these academic presses as a Christian. They're they're actually quite content. <laughs> Uh, to, to publish these, but, but I have to be very mindful that I can't take things for granted. I mean, I can't just say, well, you know, God just blessed Whitfield, and that's, that account, accounts for everything about his ministry. People who are involved with the process and reading this book, some of them don't even believe that God exists. So I have to know how to speak to that audience from a Christian perspective, but in a way that is accessible to them, too. But I think that's just, that's just an issue of having a good witness to the secular academic world. No, I wholeheartedly agree and uh, and greatly admire what you've done here. And since the publication of this book, uh, George Whitfield, America's Spiritual Founding Father, in 2014, you with Barry Hankins have published a, a, a very important book on Baptist history. And uh, I know you're in a, you haven't retired yet. You are a long <laughs> way from retirement, so you've got another project coming. So... Uh, uh, and I speak to you hoping that, uh, that you have many decades ahead of you. What, what, what's next on your agenda? The main thing that I'm working on right now, uh, also for Yale University Press, is a religious biography of Ben Franklin. <laughs> and I, I tend to jump from the end of one book to the next topic. And, and uh, the, you know, if, if Whitfield is intriguing as a, as a subject for biography, Franklin is so enigmatic about many issues, but including especially his faith. And so I'm writing a, it's a full biography of, of Franklin, but with special attention to his faith, his upbringing in a strongly Puritan family, and then his journey to become, as a young man, a deist and a skeptic. But then, you know, what, what is going on with this man that he calls himself a deist, but he's the solitary figure asking for the Constitutional Convention in 1787 to open its sessions with prayer. Uh, he, he's a remarkable, intriguing figure in so many ways, not least with regard to his faith, his relationship with George Whitfield. So that's my next major book project. recommend Thomas Kidd's book, George Whitfield, America's Spiritual Founding Father, and I do so at multiple levels because of how it's written, because of the credibility of the research, because of the sympathy of the author, and because I do think it represents a model of the kind of evangelical scholarship that is the demand of the day. And when I say that, when I put those two words together, 
I have to explain what I mean. It's not just evangelical scholarship, as if the word evangelical is a modifier before scholarship. It is rather scholarship undertaken by someone who is publicly identified as a confessing evangelical, but at the same time is working very hard to be a credible scholar in terms of the fields of history and biography. In that sense, those who are alive today in the 21st century, and I'm speaking to evangelical readers in particular, we have a wealth of historical work that simply was unavailable to previous generations. There is a great deal of value, a tremendous amount of value, in something like that massive two-volume work by Arnold Dalimore on George Whitfield. As a matter of fact, I also recommend that with genuine enthusiasm. And there are caveats. There are concerns about the kind of scholarship that does represent a kind of historical cynicism. And as a theologian, I would say perhaps the most dangerous aspect of that is the denial of the clearly theological and spiritual element to a story like that of George Whitfield. But if Professor Kidd has given us an example of how to write a book like this, well, in implication, he also gives us an understanding of how to read a book like this. We are to read it both as a work of scholarship and as a work of scholarship written by an evangelical, about someone who is indispensable to the evangelical story. As Thomas Kidd argues, he is indeed America's spiritual founding father. Another aspect as to how evangelical Christians should read is an understanding that this is an ongoing conversation. Every major book, even a book as important as this one, adds to and continues a conversation that began before us and will continue after us. We need critical and yet sympathetic writers, and we need critical and yet sympathetic readers. And in the proper sense, both the author and the reader are joining in a conversation that I'm glad to say will continue. Thanks again to my guest, Professor Thomas Kidd, for thinking with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Mulder.